Welcome to the Property Experts Podcast, where you'll find open conversations, no bullshit attitudes, and deep dive insights from award-winning property developers and business owners, Ben Richards and Jack Jiggins. Together, they've delivered over 40 million in gross development value over the last five years and have a pipeline of over 25 million to deliver in the next 18 months. They've built numerous other seven-figure businesses with six-figure net profits around their property ecosystem, and it's by no means been an easy ride. So on this podcast, they'll share their weekly trials and tribulations running multiple businesses, giving you never before seen insights into the inner workings of finding, funding, designing, delivering, and selling award-winning property deals, together with golden nuggets of advice through the five key areas of any business, marketing, sales, operations, finance, and talent. If you're a young entrepreneur looking to get started or have a small team, but you're looking to scale your business to the next level, this is the No Bullshit Podcast for you. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, everyone. Thank you once again for joining us live at 5 at 5 p.m. You'll be joining myself and Ben Richards. Ben has got a dark background, as you can see. He's actually in Cyprus at the moment. So if you're joining us, we are doing our live at 5 every Friday where we go through every single business, highs and lows, and our learnings. And we've got a really jam-packed agenda today. I think Ben will be tuning in as and when he can. I actually haven't looked at his slides in too much detail, so it'll be fun when I have to command those. If you're listening on the podcast, the date is the 13th of October, and we have an absolutely jam-packed episode as always. The viewing count was really good on, on last week. We did a deep dive on the project that you can see here, and we'll be going into a bit of detail on that today. We have legal delays on two large transactions. We'll be sharing why they were delayed and how we've overcome them. Reasonable comments from a conservation officer, if that is ever such a thing. We've had issues with conservation officers on some of our sites, especially Sunset Court, but we'll be delving into that. What is a deed of variation? Should you buy listed buildings? And that is something that we're quite active with. We don't mind a listed building, so we'll be going into that. Key handover tips, when you take on properties, sites, land, whatever it may be, we've got some tips on how you can onboard those into your business efficiently and effectively. Metro Bank has had a bit of a wobble. I don't know if any of you bank with Metro Bank, but we'll be going into detail around that. And then a little bit about Central Suites' sourcing and a deal we managed to close at 31% below the guide price. And as always, if you're listening live, ask questions as we go through. We will come around to them. This is an opportunity for anyone to ask two developers any questions about business, finance, property, projects, planning, construction, whatever it may be. So do utilize it and it's completely free. So if I were you, I'd be asking some questions. So without further ado, completion week. On Tuesday this week, we managed to complete on this site, which we're hugely excited about. This building is a 17,000 square foot office building based in Tame in Oxfordshire. We've been working on this one quite a while from a legal perspective. I think it probably took about seven to eight months to get over the line. Um, We've got huge plans for this. If you haven't watched last week's episode, which is episode 37, go and watch that because we go into a deep dive on how we found it, how we secured it, how we funded it, what we're designing, how we're delivering it, and then what the exit looks like, and also the risks that we're potentially facing with this scheme. So I'd highly recommend you go and watch that episode because 
if I went through into detail about this building now, I'd be duplicating something we've already gone through. But as a bit of a snapshot, we could see this ending up being 30 plus units, that's flats and houses, or a bit of asset management, maintaining some of the tenants that we think want to stay in situ, converting the remaining existing building to residential flats, probably about 15 or 16, and then new build houses on the car park. So we're super excited to get this one going. We've been working on this one for so long and we're excited to show our investor what we're going to do with this building and sort of really start to transform it. We've already had a few comments online that it's not got a huge curb appeal, which we can't disagree with, but that's what we like. We take things that are tired, old or disused and creating new use values and also bringing new value out of that building. And that is what we do best. So if anyone's got any questions, do let us know. I actually did have a question on this particular scheme in the last week. Why would we keep some of the building commercial if we're predominantly residential developers? Ben and I have always had the view that a developer shouldn't be pigeonholed into just PD or just resi or just new build or commercial or industrial. We believe we solve problems with sites. And sometimes solving the problem is not necessarily always residential. Residential tends to warrant the highest pound per square foot rate out of most use classes. There are some anomalies within that. But we believe that we take each site and really adapt it to get the best out of the site. Sometimes if that involves re-gearing commercial leases at the right rate, we can work off similar profit margins without all the aggro of having to deliver and practical complete numerous flats and also take all that market risk. If we're selling 30 units, as opposed to selling maybe 15, you can understand that that process of sales is a lot de-risked. So all in all, super excited to get this completed. On Friday, we were hoping to complete. I, I actually think I told the lie. We, we completed on Monday. I think I said Tuesday just now. And it slipped to Monday, but we're super excited to get going. If Ben's available for Signal, have you got anything else to mention? No, I think you've covered everything. I think, like you say, if anyone is interested to hear a deep dive into this, then check out last week's episode. Good. So legal delays. I'm sure everyone else has experienced this. I actually thought to myself this week, I wonder if solicitors and underwriters have a KPI of how many questions and problems they should ask. Because with these large sites, with covenants, with risks, with complicated building structures, title plans that we need to get through, you just face question after question after question after question. Sometimes you then have to ask the question you've already answered a few months before, and we have been facing that. So the scheme that you can see in front of you, I literally just got back from in the city. This is in North London, Muswell Hill. We exchanged on this site over a year ago uh, with a delayed completion. And delay is the word that is topical because our legals were also delayed. Um, basically, just battling between you know unexpected things that are cropping up documents that are getting changed once we've signed them, particular areas that seem to be friction for the lender. They just seem to nowadays be specifically onerous on a lot of questions and queries, whether that be the bill, the contractor, like as a prime example, I was actually with the underwriter of the bank today. And he said, who have you instructed as contractor? I said, no one, because it's going to cost us the best part of 30 grand to put this through detailed design to get it through to tendering process. And it's going to take us three weeks of three people working on it full time. Why would we do that before we complete? Classic case, they want everything all up front, all packaged up, which you can understand if you were getting three and a half million quid out the door, you'd want to make sure that it's all tied up and all underwritten. But there's, in my opinion, in our Monday, there's a lack of pragmatism 
And that re- we really struggle with that because we are a, quite a pragmatic business. And therefore, where we're struck with problems that haven't been pragmatically approached, we struggle to get our head around that. Ben is obviously in Cyprus and they're insisting on wet ink originals documents. So there's an element of this is partly being delayed because Ben is coming back on Monday. Fortunately, on this particular scheme, we don't have an issue delaying it to that date. We've got a really good relationship with the vendor. But I suppose just to add a bit of value for listeners out there, DocuSign, if they accept it, agree it because it is 10 times easier. You don't have to worry about the right pages, the right signatures, the right witnesses. The solicitor does it all at their end and pushes through DocuSign. Not all lenders will accept a DocuSign agreement. So you may have to still do the traditional way of printing and wet ink. So the second tip is tell your solicitor that you just want to turn up at their office when everything's done and ready and sign it all and let them witness it. That's a quite a good one because it then means that you don't have to worry about every single document that you've got pulled together. They normally don't charge for that. And also they then have the documents so you don't have to get them in a courier or next day delivery or whatever it may be. Third tip, if we have an agreement that does get adapted at a later date and we already have signed it, we can normally agree a signature page to be placed in the new document by a confirmation email. So that's just an amendment facility that you agree that you can put the old signature page into the new document and that is sometimes a way around it. But long and short of it, it is a nightmare. I kind of feel like with TAME, the scheme that we saw on the first slide and this scheme that you can see in front of you, I've probably signed more documents than the average person signs in their life in the last week. So it is a pain and it's good to have some ideas about how you can make life easier. And I suppose the quicker you get into the underwriting process and the legal process, the quicker you can perform. But it just does take forever. Anything to add, Ben? Nothing, nothing to add. I think I've caught most of that. Some really good tips. You just got to have patience sometimes. These things are sent to try you. There'll be constant queries just when you think you've got things over the line. But part of being a property developer and a business owner is kind of rolling with those punches. They will come. So expect them and be ready and don't get too uh, disheartened. Keep plowing through. Very good. Do you want to take this one? I think your signal's stable enough too. Yeah, yeah. This is our Marlow project. For those that can't see it, we've already got planning approval and bagged four unit conversion at the front of the site. And we've resubmitted to get another four units at the back, which is currently a dance studio. It's in a conservation area. It's a listed building to the front. It's not a listed building to the rear. But we had a response from the council today from the planning officer saying, we need you to make some changes to the drawings. Now, when I see that, my heart sinks a little bit and I sometimes don't want to read down the page because I think it's going to be horrendous. Today, I was quietly surprised. So all the council conservation officer wanted us to do is remove a couple of Velux roof lights from one of the rear roof elevations. They were completely happy with the three side dormers that we wanted to add. No other comments other than just remove some of the Velux windows, which... Yeah, on some of the other schemes that we've had, when you hear from the conservation officer, we've had absolute really, really hard times getting through them. So just to hear that and get just that response on Marlow is a really, really sort of positive step forward. And if that's the only comments that the planning officer is sending over to us at this stage, it bodes well for the approval on that. So hopefully in the next couple of weeks, we get planning approval to turn that site from fully commercial to eight flats which should significantly increase the GDP of that site and the existing site value. So, yeah, fingers crossed. That's the last we hear from the conservation officer. 
I think that brings the GDP up from about two and a quarter million to about three million on that particular side. If anyone knows Marlow, hugely affluent area. Tom Kerridge has got Michelin style pub there. And it's just down the road from our HQ as well. It's five minutes from Hemlin. So, yeah, exciting stuff. I just wanted to touch on it because there will be a lot of people that probably don't even understand what it is. Um, so just a very high level overview of what a deed of variation may be. So for argument's sake, we've just extended the term of one of our loans today with one of our investors. And essentially what was required was a deed of variation to do that. So let's say you've got existing facility agreement or loan agreement in place and say the term is coming to an end. You've agreed with your investment partner that we are to extend that loan because of unforeseen circumstances or the sales process is slightly slower and that's been agreed by both parties. There's no real need to drop a full new loan agreement for a extension of six months, for example. So what you would do in that case is get your solicitor to draw up a deed of variation to the original lease. So it would be a five or six page document that takes out the bits from the original loan agreement and says you know, clause six now becomes 24 months as opposed to 18 months. These are the new terms. If there's anything else within the original loan agreement that is varying, that is what this deed of variation can do for you. So it shouldn't take, I mean, we instructed this first thing yesterday morning and by close of play today, we've had agreement from both solicitors, had agreement from investment partner, and we've signed the document and executed the, the document to extend the loan by six months. So a deed of variation can be used to vary anything within an original agreement or deed, quite simply. I would also add there that Ben mentioned your other option is to rewrite a new loan agreement, which is also quite difficult if there's no transfer of funds. So fundamentally, you have to go down the deed of variation route. One thing I would also say is your only other option is actually you're in default. We have a really good relationship with this investor. And I know that if we were in default, he wouldn't charge us the default rate of interest. He would charge us the same as what we've been paying. But it doesn't look good for us if we're in default on a loan by no fault of our own. So a simple deed of variation explains and paints the story of this particular scheme we've had delays with Thames Water and some planning and actually conservation officer. And it, it keeps everyone honest. It keeps it watertight for us. And it lets the investor understand where they're at. Let's just assume, you know, God's taken a position that something happened to our investor. He became more motivated to get it back uh, or he changes his tune or someone else takes control of that capital, you know, we would be in a difficult position because we would have no bargaining chips. We would be in default and it would be a fault for not setting up, you know, you're setting yourself up for failure if you don't get things like deed of variations in place. I also believe, and it was actually the reason we pushed this through because our investor said, do we need to do this? I'm fine. Is when you're applying for new loans, sometimes lenders ask you if you are in default with any loans. And if you say, no, and you are, you're obviously lying. So a deed of variation is an extension to an existing loan that protects you and keeps you know, your business clean and honest so that you're all on the same page and it's legally binding. Should you buy a list of buildings? I question why we do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I put this one in because I feel that we're one of few that do. And I don't know why that is. My dad told me something a long time ago, which made me laugh. I think we bought a a four-bedroom house in Abingdon, which was built in the 1600s or something like that. I you know, took my dad around. Obviously, he's got a lot of construction and building experience. And I said, what do you think? And he said, well, it's been there for 300 years. It'll probably be there for another 300 years. And it made me laugh. 
Because when you see these horror stories of new build stock and the quality that they deliver, it would be interesting to see if they could stand for, for 300 years. But it's topical because on slide, I think, nine, we're talking about uh, a site that we've just exchanged on in Central Suites. And I was keen to hear if anyone else is at, out there that is avoiding listed buildings. We find that you can buy them quite cheap, pound per square foot. We bought one in, uh, in Reading at £106 per square foot, and we sold that on with planning consent. Ben has obviously got an example here on, on the left called Theobald's Manor, which is a scheme he's been working on in, in Aura Architecture, which is a great list of building. I think the, the build spend on that one is probably a bit eccentric for flipping houses or commercially being a property developer. And then we've got our site on the right there, which is our site in Marlow, which is listed. But I'll, I'll give my two pence and then Ben can add his. But in short, we, we don't mind listed buildings. The one in Central Suites we've just exchanged on is listed. So that requires planning permission and listed building consent. They're normally priced because a lot of people get scared of them. Um, sometimes the building structure and the actual basics of the building can actually be better than, than some modern day buildings. And, you know, I don't really have a qualm with them. All I try and focus on is whatever you're putting in, as long as it can be removed and you're not hindering or damaging anything that is already there, you can normally overcome most of the problems with a listed building. We have had other stipulations that make your cost go marginally higher. I know a developer down in Southampton and he had to recreate cornices in the ceilings and corners of, of the building they bought and I think they were spending something like £80 a metre to put these cornices up across the whole site and if you're not aware of reinstating things within listed buildings it can bite you in the arse but as long as you do the right DD up front and assess what is listed what needs to be maintained even if things aren't listed quite frequently if you do have a difficult heritage uh, officer on the case they will still want other things reinstated even if we all know it's only been there for probably 20 years we actually in one of our hmos there was a door that was plywood which i would assume is probably 10 15 years old the heritage officer made us paint that plywood door with intermittent paint and not replace it because they thought it had a heritage interest because it looked like it being cut with a jigsaw after someone had about 15 beers but in reality, be prepared to sort of overcome what they're going to throw at you and put that in your budget, put marginal and more duration in the delivery and also the planning because you do need the list of building consent. But from what we've learned, Ben, I believe list of building consent has been a lot quicker than planning. Yeah, quite, quite a lot of the time, actually. My, my only other thing is really to say that if you're aware of the problems that you might come up against and you're prepared for them to, to be patient, to negotiate with the conservation officer to you know, reinstate things like Jack said, if they need reinstating, then they're fine. You know, they can be a labour of love and bringing disused old buildings like these back to useful life. You know, it's fantastic, but just be prepared that it could be a money pit. You could be you know, blowing a lot of your budget on things that you didn't account for if the conservation officer digs their heels in. The other thing to say is that from a layout change perspective, even changing, you know, if it's subdividing a room, you may not think, oh, okay, this, this is a temporary wall that's going up subdividing a room. If that subdivision creates a room that isn't of, you know, the historic age of the property, then the conservation officer can say no. The heritage officer can say no, because it basically removes that historic grandeur or size of that, that particular bedroom, for example. And I've seen that before where people have tried to chop up rooms and, you know, carve out on suites and it, it breaks the kind of regularity or rectangularness, if that's the word, um, of the room and it gets pushed back. So 
just be prepared that you won't be able to make wholesale changes to the layout and start opening up doors and windows. The fabric of the building is very sensitive. As long as you're sensitive to that, then you'll probably get on quite well with the conservation officer. But it's I don't think it is for the faint-hearted. Don't go into it if you don't know what to expect and you don't have a conservation architect or someone that's used to working on these types of schemes with you at hand because you will be bitterly disappointed and you will get very frustrated. Don't be scared of them as long as you've got the right team behind you and you kind of anticipate what needs to happen and have a good budget. If you're excited by some of the property developments or investments that we talk about on this show and want to know more about investing £100,000 or more with XP, email info at xpproperty.co.uk to set up a call with one of our team. We can discuss our open investment opportunities and provide you with our track record details showing with complete transparency our historic performance project by project and how you could be part of our growing pipeline of developments. I've also got a really top tip of basically a situation that we went through, which made us do this in, in all of our purchase contracts. We've bought quite a few buildings that aren't listed, but we think they probably should be. And when that is the case, that it's you know a big grand building that's been there for two, 300 years or 150 years or whatever it may be, prime examples, the old Maltings in Abingdon and also St. Helens Mill in Abingdon. In reality, I'm, I'm not sure why they're not listed. And what we do in our purchase contracts, because obviously the planning play on permitted development over full planning and listed building consent is a completely different, far removed game. You're probably looking at a year at listed building consent and planning combined if it's listed or 58 days, well, 56 days with a couple of days either way for it to go if it's PD. So what we now do in our contracts, purchase contracts is we stipulate if the listing status of the building changes between exchange and completion, you have the rights to redact the contract. Now, in reality, you're probably not going to redact the contract. We wouldn't mind if it was listed, but it gives us that anchor to negotiate or, or factor in that additional cost and time frame with the vendor or the contract gets pulled and we get our exchange funds back. That's a really top tip or something because we were, I think it might have been the old maltings, we were squeaky bum time between exchange and completion because what you have to remember is when you've exchanged on a site and you've submitted PD or you're going to submit PD, as soon as the local authority or local people or public or neighbours see that, they might be able to quite quickly put a stop gate in front of you by requesting the building is locally listed or, list or fully listed. So that's what we do with our contracts to hopefully prevent that change in between exchange and completion. That's the type of gold nugget that people listen to this for. That's probably going to save someone a lot of money in the future if they listen to this. So, yeah, cracking tip that one. Yeah, cool. So on to another tip, key handover tip. So if you've bought buildings, houses, sites, whatever it may be, and you get really excited, you run around, take loads of selfies, and then three months later, you can't remember where the keys were, what window opened where, you've lost the keys because they all look the same and you don't know where the meters are and things like this. So I thought I'd share this tip and we basically have a process that we have in place when we have acquired a site. We use Google Drive and Asana. Google Drive is our storage and Asana is our project management. That might be Mondays or Trello, whatever it may be. But we actually had a new hire this week. So I took her to our site that we just completed on Monday for a handover of keys. And I basically taught her how I normally do it. And this was quite a complicated one because it's got sitting tenants, vacant units. It's seven offices, seven water meters, seven electrical meters, and seven gas meters. 
some of the gas meters had been nicked, which is the first time I've ever heard of that before. Apparently, people nick them, put them in, in their own home so that they don't pay gas charges. But anyway, back to the tip of how we hand over the site. So we walk around with the managing agent, the agent, the owners or whoever it is, and just record the conversation as you're walking around. And you can dictate to the recording of where everything is, what they're saying. You know, for an example, there's a string of lights down the right-hand side flank of this scheme, and that is actually maintained and paid for by the snooker club. That's all recorded. So all of that information is recorded into like a 20-minute walk around. And then what you can then do is, is sort of reference different points while you're going through the voice clip. So for an example, I'll go, we're walking into unit six now. The gas meter is at the front of the door on the left-hand side. The electrical meter is under the stairs. The key is a bronze key that's, you know, et cetera. And what you do is then when you get back into the office, you can jot up notes of exactly what the handover looks like, where the keys are, how it's all made and put together and where everything's located. And then that document is then on the drive forever future. So anyone in your team can go on that handover doc and find out more information than you would ever be able to remember. I'm a massive believer in rely on tech and documents, not your own brain, because then it relieves space for more stuff. And if you've got a small brain like me, that's really useful. So we basically go around and write up that report. In addition to doing that, on every site, we fit a lockbox in a secure place. We tend to fit one key within the lockbox with then access internally to one space with then all the keys or some keys to the rest of the building, which then is probably also in a lockbox or some sort of secure space. What that does for us is Ben lives sort of northwest of this site. I live south. Tom lives east. You know, for an example, our team can go to site and get a key whenever they need. And it could be shared with trusted consultants, could be shared with trusted contractors. And it's just an easy way for you to not have to handle and waste time collecting keys, dropping keys off, getting them cut, losing them, whatever it may be. So that's a key tip of how we hand over sites. And if there's any questions on that, happy to answer any. We're getting some questions in. Potter smiles, I can't share them. Wahey, squeaky bum time. They're more like comments slash insults than questions. Anyway, so Metro Bank. So long and short, you've probably seen the media. Metro Bank, like the only high street bank that I'm aware of that are in the media more than a celebrity, constantly going through, you know, share price issues, cash flow issues. And annoyingly for people like us who set up a lot of SPVs, who go into store and can set it up their same day, they are quite a vulnerable bank to be part of. And the reason we sort of attract them is because they have a very straightforward process to open up bank accounts for SPVs. Quite a common issue for other banks is they don't like layered company setups. What I mean by that is if you own a limited company by another company, it's sometimes difficult to get a bank account in the lower layer. If it's owned by directors, it's more straightforward. So I would recommend if anyone's looking to open bank accounts, definitely don't change the shares into limited company ownership until you've got the bank account open. Because there's no value in the business, it will be worth nil. Uh, there's no cost or, or stamp duty to be paid for that. So our process always is limited company set up in mine and Ben's name, for example, XP8, set up the bank account, and then shift the shares over into the group structure. But yeah, so Metro Bank have gone a bit wobbly. I've always been informed and I'm not a financial advisor, so don't hold me to this. And I haven't actually looked too much in the detail, but there should be coverage of £85,000 per bank account if a bank were to go under. I think 
if Metro were to sort of go that way, it would probably come out in the news that someone like RBS or HSBC have bought them for a pound and, and, and taken all their customer database and all their branches and so on and so forth. So I don't ever think it would come to that. But just one thing to be conscious of when you are monitoring news and you know you're you're banking with a metro bank look at the coverage and protection that you have in each bank account because it might make sense to move some money for your own safety and for your your business safety and also potentially your investor safety so that's a process we did a week or two ago i think when we saw the first headlines come up we just moved a few things around for security reasons and i would highly recommend doing that we're actually looking at shifting from Metro regardless, find a bank that's got more of a relationship manager structure because we've had it before where, for example, it, not just Metro but others, but they sort of prevent certain payments or certain values. So if we're trying to make a payment to exchange on a building of 50K, it gets blocked and then exchange gets delayed and everyone else is ready and the seller's got their solicitor on hook to get the exchange done today, but you can't do it. We have had that on several occasions and in actual fact, we had that with a purchase of a property where a bank had their funds locked and we missed completion day by 24 hours. So it's definitely worth making sure you, you market, check the market and go to the right bank. And I'm asking our listeners if they've got any suggestions. We already bank with NatWest on some business accounts with HSBC and they were pretty terrible. Starling, Tide, Barclays. Barclays we've got a business bank account with. We're already fairly immersed, but we are looking to move along. Central Suites sourcing deal closed. If you didn't know, a big shout out to Patrick, who joined us, I think, January this year. He's been helping us source projects on. So this is where we take on projects that might not be in quite the right location or size or value or use class. And we package those up for other developers that do like those projects in those areas or that value and sell them on. We actually closed the deal this Monday, which was a really good deal to get over the line. And it's good to get Patrick sort of invigorated and up and running. And this particular deal is in Oxfordshire. It's a mixed-use building, which has got a retail unit on the ground floor and a three-bedroom apartment above. It's conversion, in, in our opinion, we're just getting the measured survey in the next week, should be to a townhouse and a very much smaller retail unit. Um, the retail units EPC is the worst it can be. So that's going to be fun. And this is also is greatly listed. But the numbers is what we wanted to get into. We've worked with sources before and we've also sourced stuff on. And there are, are a lot of sources out there that just forward emails. And to us, that's not true value and doesn't deserve fees. We actually charge a fee because we believe we can negotiate a discount on the value of the building in excess of the fee that would be going to us. In this particular scenario, the guide price was 580, and we managed to secure it for 400K. So it's a 180K discount, which is 31% below the guide price. Yep, you could argue it was probably marketed quite strong, but that is still a really good discount. And across all the schemes that we bought and delivered or sourced on, which I believe is up to about 70 at the moment, we've agreed an average of 18% below the guide price. So as you can see, we would like to think that a potential 2% fee on the purchase price is a huge saving for anyone out there that might be short of time and looking for deals. So it's a bit of a case study. We're obviously keen to get cracking on with this site because Patrick sourced it into Central Suites. Anyone that is interested in looking for deals or has any deals to sell, please do reach out and I'll put you in contact with Patrick as we do have a really strong pipeline of projects ranging all across the UK and the South and all across different values as well. 
I just wanted to give a big shout out and congratulations to Alex from my Aura team. Today, he became a Reba Chartered Architect, so fully qualified, has been working really hard on his part three side of his, his architecture course over the last year. Lots of late night shifts, lots of lectures, lots of dissertations and uh, coursework alongside working full time for Aura. So yeah, massive sort of congratulations for anyone that doesn't know the architectural process. That's effectively the end of your sort of seven year stint. Yeah, to- become a fully qualified architect so hats off to him um big celebrations next time i see him next week when i get back in the office very good that causes a closure for this week's episode from us sharing things if anyone has any questions please do let us know the questions don't stop when these live stop you can ask us questions dms social media whatever it may be and we will always come around to your questions and put them in these slides as i mentioned at the beginning this is free so if you are an aspiring developer or property investor and have a burning question and don't know the answer to it i can guarantee either me or ben will know the answer or we'll know someone that will know the answer so ping it in the group and we will make sure we get around to answering that i think we got a bit ben farewell to um go enjoy his last few days in Cyprus before he comes back to this crazy mayhem of delivering about 700 projects. Looking forward to it. Very good, good. That's all, I think. Yeah, dinner time for me. Catch you later. Enjoy. Thank you, everyone. Bye now. These live Q&A episodes are all about helping you grow your business and build a property portfolio that provides financial wealth. If you have specific topics that you'd like us to discuss, make sure to comment on the platform you're listening on or email info at xpproperty.co.uk so that we can discuss your topic in future episodes. And if you found these conversations valuable for growing your business, make sure to click that follow button and we'd really love for you to tell just one person about us. Thank you.